the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Sam Johnston, cannabis attorney in Virginia with us today. Sam, welcome. I'm really glad to have you here. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. <laughs> and we're in person this time. We're going to have some chicken pot pie when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. But I'm what I want to talk to you about today. Well, first, before we get into all of that, what was your first cannabis experience? <laughs> oh, I guess um, uh, was I was listening to Deep Purple, uh, Machine Head album. Maybe I'm a Leo. And I was like, I kind of I kind of like I, I like I didn't just hear it. I heard it. It's a solid choice for music, too. <laughs> Back in the 70s. Child of the 70s. What can I say? <laughs> what got you into working as an attorney in the cannabis movement? Great question. Um, I mean, I've kind of always, you know, been um, uh, interested in, in cannabis, uh, you know, as a, as a young adult, especially, and as a musician. But um, previously, I, you know, I had been a lawyer for, I'd been in, had an environmental law practice. And... Right around the time when states started legalizing cannabis around uh, uh, 20, 2014 or so, I, I, I decided that I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, I've been doing environmental law for a while, but I wanted to expand into the cannabis realm. So I, um, I started, you know, studying up on it. States were starting to legalize, you know, by that time, Colorado and I guess Washington and Oregon had legalized. And um, I just decided I wanted to get into it. So, um, you know, that's... Um, uh, I kind of sought out uh, some folks and and got into it that way. Now, before we get into your legal work, I want to go back a little bit. You're a musician. Cannabis and creativity. What are your thoughts? Sure. Well, um, cannabis is a potent um, uh, uh, avenue for, for creativity in so many ways. I mean... Um, you know, I can remember one time uh, when I was studying Latin in college, I was reading Latin poetry and um, Virgil's Aeneid. And uh, and the thing about when you're learning a language is, you know, you're really learning it when you can understand the words as the words in that language without resorting to, to your native language in your head. So one time I was reading, I, I was doing my homework and I got a little stoned. And I was reading Virgil's Aeneid, and the rhythm of the words was exactly like the sound of the words and the meaning of the words. And I just, I, I, I had to stop and say, whoa, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> and Virgil, of course, those are that back in, in the ancient Roman days, that was when, you know, epic poems like that were, were transmitted from generation to generation through song. And, uh, and so that was a really neat experience. And but anyway, after that, you know, as I became um, a musician and a keyboard player, I, you know, would would, you know, smoke weed sometimes and play. And it just was a lot of fun. I mean, it's just a, a, a fun is really a, a, a big part of it. Just basic fun. Enjoying it. Um, music can be a chore. It takes takes some discipline, you know, uh, to learn to learn your chops, to learn how to play and to learn how to listen and learn how to play with other people. But um uh, sometimes weed can can kind of uh, soften or paper over the the edges of that kind of experience. And uh, whether you're playing alone or if you're playing with other people who also maybe are passing passing the joint around and and uh, and it facilitates uh, jamming, facilitates um, uh, 
improvising, which of course is a kind of a jazz tradition, right? Improvising. Absolutely. And, and weed. So that's just kind of, you know, following along in the footsteps of, of other, other, um, you know, previous uh, traditions in music. Yeah, yeah, you know, jazz cigarettes and all that. Mm -hmm. But yes, for me as a jazz <laughs> singer, I found that like smoking a little bit before I go on stage it helps me get into, it's just that little boost that gets me into that creative flow state where I'm still engaging with my audience, but a little bit of me is more into the music and just a little less aware that there's a bunch of people staring at me. Right, right. <laughs> Which helps. It always helps. <laughs> it's always a better show if you can kind of lose yourself in it a little. So, Virginia, tell me, what's been going on? Well, Virginia, um, I like to to look at Virginia as sort of the gateway to the South, you might say, as far as cannabis is concerned. Because, you know, it's it's pretty far north. It borders on the northern states. And it's uh, it's kind of a purple state. Uh, it's been trending purple anyway lately because of demographic changes in Northern Virginia and and such. Um, you know, there's a pretty strong <clears throat> Democratic Party in Virginia, and um, it's not it's not like some of the other you know sort of uh, deep South states like Mississippi and Alabama where we don't I don't I think cannabis is a little farther off. Yeah, but um, but also Virginia is. Um, you know, like similar to Kentucky is, is an old tobacco state. And so, but tobacco farming isn't, isn't really, is, is very problematic in, in a lot of ways. It's hard to make money as a tobacco farmer. Um, it's not very good for the soil. It depletes the soil. Um, it's not really a sustainable crop. And, um, and, you know, the product that it creates isn't exactly, <laughs> you know, uh, healthy for, for individuals or society. Uh, I wouldn't want to outlaw tobacco, but at the same time, it's like, you know, we can do better. So, so that, that, that leads to hemp. And I, I, you know, for my, for my own work, uh, experience in Virginia, you know, I, I kind of realized a long time ago that hemp would probably get legalized before marijuana would, before cannabis would in Virginia. Um, because it traditionally was a, a crop of, in the colonies and, and in the early, early days of, of, um, of the U.S., um, hemp was legal. It was right. legal at a lot of places. Kentucky was kind of the home of it, but there was a lot of hemp in Virginia too. And as most people know, George Washington said, sow the hemp everywhere because hemp was an important crop for, for back in those days, both for, um, for farming and for the, the, the textile products that it created and for the seeds, for the food that you can get out of the seeds and, um, and for the medicinal value. So, so I got into hemp, uh, at first when I was, um, I had moved from California, Virginia and, just got involved with the hemp hemp movement there, um, which uh, which was a lot of fun um, because we did well and we were able to put together a coalition of Democrats and Republicans in the Virginia legislature uh, to get hemp legalized, which was fun because we were working with all kinds of different, you know, it was one of these kind of one of those rare instances of bipartisanship and um, where everybody was in agreement. There's a strong libertarian um, streak, uh, in, uh, amongst Virginians and, and the, and so we were able to get a broad consensus around the idea of, of why in the world would the government prevent, prevent farmers from growing hemp, which is, which is utterly, completely harmless. Well, that, that reminds me of Oklahoma because they had a very libertarian approach to their policy 
So it's interesting to see how that manifests in different states with their cultures and just the, the political makeup of the state itself. Exactly. Sure. And Kentucky as well. Mitch McConnell, who obviously is, you know, the leader of the, the Republicans in the Senate, uh, played a big role um, in getting the farm, the farm bill of 2018. I, I think it was 2018. Um, I believe you're right. Time flies. But that was the, that was the federal legislation that legalized hemp. And Mitch McConnell steered that steered that through because he knew that Kentuckians really wanted it. Kentucky uh, was kind of the center of the hemp movement back in the 1920s or, and and before that um and uh and so and a lot of the like i said a lot of the tobacco farmers weren't doing well and the idea was well let's take these tobacco barns and start drying hemp in them instead of tobacco and so that took off and and it's it up to a point did pretty well unfortunately there's it hasn't really taken off yet because we've had problems with the fda and such and i can i can go into detail about that if you like or um you know, whatever. But uh, so 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 hemp has kind of been stalled a little bit in Virginia right now mm-hmm. um, and until I think until the Democrats can get back into power. I, it's interesting thinking about Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, hemp. It is it's like such a historic thing. And then when you throw Washington in there, it's like the Constitution was one of the drafts was written on hemp paper. Yes, that's right. Well, the Declaration. Yeah. Oh, the Declaration. That's right. Right. Sorry. Right, right. It's 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 afternoon. <laughs> Right, right. No, but that no, but that's a common and uh, and there were several. Yes, there were. The hemp was commonly used for paper back in those days, and there's no and there's no reason why it can't can't be again. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that FDA stuff. Sure. Okay. Well, so the the hemp industry sort of was um, starting to take off. One one of the challenges with growing hemp and being making it profitable for both farmers and processors and retailers and making it worthwhile for consumers is is uh, is the efficient uh, processing of the plant after it's grown, because um, uh, it it it's uh, it it's it takes a lot of uh, time and work and energy to to uh, process the plant into its various components for products and the idea is. Um, for farmers, hemp is use, is very useful because it can be a, just another rotation crop to be added to the ro- to the crops like corn and soy. Uh, it's good for the soil. It, it fixes nitrogen in the soil and can can help help with agriculture. But the problem is that we have gotten into the game so late compared with other countries. So, for example, China has uh, invested a, a lot of resources into its hemp processing infrastructure, which is important for hemp because when you're making textiles, which is kind of the biggest tradition fiber, the fiber products from hemp, textiles, clothing, the hemp that we see and buy in the stores, it all comes from China or Canada or Europe where they've been doing it for so long that they have the processing infrastructure in place. It takes, you know, lots of money to, to invest in a system where you can do what's called decorticating, which is the process of separating out the herd from the internal strands of the plant that then are are spun into textiles. And those strands are and and hemp is is a strong fiber. It's pro- probably I think considered one of the if not the strongest natural fibers. It was used by the colonists. It was used by the British fleet to make sails and ropes for that and and all. There's a whole history about that that's mm-hmm. fascinating to read about. You can look it up online. Um, but anyway, in fact, Je- Thomas Jefferson invented a decorticator um, that he used to separate out the 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 strand the the um, the fibers. But um, but to do that at scale requires um, a lot of 
um, in, uh, investment and research and and figuring it out. Um, you know, you have to uh, be able to to farm large acreages, and then you have to process large large volumes of it with big machines. And it's kind of like in order to make it work, it's just you have to do it up to scale like any other farm crop. And and nobody really, unless you're already a big, um, big company that's that's, you know, that's well funded. Nobody can do that. The idea one of the ideas behind legalizing hemp, just to take a step back a little bit, is to help um, help sustainable farming and help uh, family farms and communities and small farmers. But the agriculture industry has long been taken over in the United States by these giant corporations who farm in multiple states and they, they're able to afford, you know, the five hundred thousand dollar harvesters that can harvest the crop. And they have, by the way. And so but again, with hemp, they have to design and, and these machines and develop this infrastructure so that you can not only harvest the fiber, but you can also save the seeds to make food and and oils from and 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 save the flowers that you that can then be then be used to make medicine. And all of that requires a lot of um, uh, 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 investment. And, and yeah. so so anyway, so but which which brings me to the FDA, because the, the and the, the idea now for hemp is that hemp companies can can grow hemp for the medicine, which is profitable in the short term. And while we're taking the longer time to develop the infrastructure to do the fiber and the other products. But in the meantime, there's already a good market for CBD and cannabinoids that can come just as well out of the hemp flower as that it can come out of the cannabis. So the idea was. Well, well, hemp companies can get set up and while they're getting their farms and their equipment and their machinery and everything ready to do fiber, they can grow for a few years, grow, grow the hemp, basically grow it like cannabis, grow it in bushes that are separated out and you grow it for the flower instead of having the plants all really close together where you grow it for the stem fiber. So that but what that required is the ability to sell the final product, CBD, as a nutritional supplement, which you can do, you know, when you go buy your tincture. Um, and it's a CBD tincture. I love it. It helps me go to sleep. Um, sometimes if I have insomnia, that's what it's commonly used for, but it has other uses as well for skin oil and, and all kinds of things. But, um, but the problem is in order to do that, the FDA, uh, needed to acknowledge that CBD was lawfully in commerce. And, and that's, that's kind of the legal threshold for any kind of nutritional supplement that is newly developed and that is about to go on the market, the FDA will not approve it unless it's either um, uh, so-called uh, grass, uh, generally recognized as safe, which which refers to products that have been on the market for so long, we all know they're all safe. We've all been using them forever. Or that's been, uh, on, or on the other hand, that's been developed by maybe a, a, a drug company and it's, it's novel. And so the, the company would just have to go through the, the normal process of proving to the FDA that it's safe. And um, so you would have, uh, uh, you know, the the um, the the uh, trials, 
drug trials like any other drug. Right. But the problem with CBD is that it's already been legalized and there's a clause in the law that the FDA continually cites saying that, well, if it's already been developed by a company, then we won't recognize it as GRAS and we won't recognize it as a new legal product because it's already been developed and researched. It's kind of complicated. It's kind of, uh, it's counterintuitive, but for some reason, and after, 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 after several years of intense lobbying of the FDA, they just refuse to budge. And so they can still consider CBD to be not lawfully in commerce. So that means all sorts of, that has all sorts of sort of um, uh, ancillary impacts. For example, since CBD is not considered by the FDA to be lawfully in commerce, you can't trademark your brand. So if you develop a new tincture with cool with your own sort of, you know, uh, terpene profile and your own little um, uh, flavors, you have a cool new brand. It works great, tastes great, people love it. You, you can't you can't get a trademark on it. So that's that's a, that's a big, you know, in, impediment for a new business is trying to get going. Great. Anyway, so so that's that's kind of where we're at right now. I got a question about that. So if the FDA is seeing it through that lens, how does that impact? any sort of legislation on testing because as it is now like you know here in California when we legalized cannabis that's when testing finally became mandatory and it should because cannabis is a bioaccumulator and you you know it will leach anything that is grown in and around when we're looking at like atmosphere and soil but also you know making sure that nobody's using any you know growth inhibitors or anything like that with it um, but also the fact that several years ago they did random testing of CBD products and some of them were found to have less CBD than they touted mm -hmm. some didn't have any at all and there was a case where it was high in THC and I think like it's one of the things that I talk to people who are living in states where they don't have access to dispensaries with tested products and they're curious about CBD. I always tell them, don't work with a company that won't give you of current COA on product. Right. So does, does the FDA's ruling on this being that it's not legal impact or not impact what we'll be seeing in testing? That's a great question. Uh, as my my understanding is that for testing in general, um, well, first of all, the, every state has its own kind of protocols for for that for that for testing, and they they every state operates their own um, health health departments. Um, in Virginia, um, uh, CBD products are con are considered food products. All all tink all nutritional supplements are considered to be food products, and they're le regulated like any food product. So there's inspections of facilities to make sure that there's no you know uh, bio biohazards and all that sort of stuff. But for what you're talking about, all these kind of new new um, new challenges for for the the testing of cannabis products, um, traditionally the DEA has been. Uh, the lead agency federally for that sort of thing and has rules uh, that states follow. Now, um, with with uh, with the testing of cannabis, I think. Um, see, it, it, um, well, and what I was thinking too is because we're talking about hemp and it's an agricultural issue. Like, where do we go when we talk about pesticides in our vegetables? Is it like, you know what I mean? It's is right. it. 
is that, that's a Department of Ag that's talking about that, correct? That's right. That's right. And the well, so during during the there, there was a parallel process during this time of um, of lobbying of the FDA over the last few years, where the USDA was also doing its regulatory activity, and it came up with a set of rules um, that would that would that would govern all that stuff. And it would hit, it came up with a set of standards uh, that products would have to adhere to, and um, and and that got worked out. I don't uh, I don't even remember the details because the FDA never 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 came around, and so it's it's kind of moot because um, you know unless you're going to just kind of ignore the FDA, and that happens a lot. I mean the, that's part of the part of the the chaotic situation here is that there is so much of it on the market and it's everywhere. And people aren't like falling down, <laughs> right? Um, um, uh, but uh, so there are the, all of that is doable. There are standards that the FDA that the, uh, rather that the USDA has put in place in order to regulate hemp and hemp products from from flower to bottle, if you will. Once it's in the bottle, then it's up to the health departments of every state to make sure that what's in the bottle is you know it doesn't have toxins. Um, uh, and, 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 uh, and is labeled properly. In other words, that everything that the label says is in it, is in it and, and nothing else. And so there's labeling that, that it, again, it's basically the same way that food is regulated. Food labels have to have certain things like when you buy a soda or when you buy a, a food product and it'll say, it'll have on the back of the label, it'll say nutritional facts like that. Most mm -hmm. States will require, and Virginia does, and I assume California probably does, that those, that those nutritional facts, there are certain elements that have to be there, you know, sugars, fats, carbohydrates, whatever else is in the product, uh, uh, milligrams. Now, now, one of the ways that they trick you, though, is that the regulators will, and, and this, this is the most recent sort of contrivance in Virginia uh, that knocked a lot of hemp products out of the market, is that they required um, there to be on the label an, an indicator of the, uh, milligrams per serving. Now that's that's probably a good idea in general to do, but the the standards that they promulgated in Virginia were so strict that it was impossible to comply because they said that the, you have you can first of all because for taking another taking a step back again, uh, point zero point three percent THC is the federal legal limit of how much THC is allowed to be in, um, in a CBD product. So you can have up to and including 0.3% THC. If it's 0.31, it's illegal. So we so call that, that hot hemp, right? Yeah, that's hot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so that's doable. That's restrictive and it's difficult to comply with and still make a profit if you're a CBD company, but it's doable. But Virginia took that one step further. And they said, well, okay, that's once that we're going to require that, but we're also going to require that there be no more than, I forget the number of what it was, X number of milligrams per serving of THC in the product. And that made it so that effectively it, it, it meant that that threshold was more restrictive than 0.3%. So that meant that in order to comply it was not affordable for companies. They, uh, but they would have to, to remove all of their products that were already on the market and reformulate them, and they would lose, you know, all their all their money, uh, 
and and you know as as you probably and a lot of people business know these 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 business plans you know go work in terms of many years of a time horizon so when you go changing the rules in the middle of the game like that it doesn't work no no <laughs> but but you know it makes one think that perhaps that was intentional and as a lawyer i can tell you yeah I think probably so. Yeah, that's how they do it. That's how they restrict it. That's how they get around the pub, the the political, uh, you know, problem of saying sorry, you can't do that. They they make it a help. They pretend it's like well we, well well what about the children and what you know which is a legitimate thing. Obviously, nobody wants to you know get their kids too stoned or and nobody wants bad products on the market. Right, but if you if you don't have a thriving illicit or as I like to refer to it as traditional market, you have just lessened youth access a hundredfold. Right. Right. There's ways of doing it. You know, look at alcohol. I mean, there's there's ways of doing this. We can do this. Yeah. I mean there's I in California here, you know, I remember when I was still in dispensary and one day I was helping up the front desk and there was a lady who came in in her eighties didn't have her ID. I couldn't let her in. I felt so bad because she was like, damn it, you can tell I'm over 21. But it's like, these are the things that are coming into play so that when we are talking to government, local and state and, you know, a federal eventually, that, yeah, we're being really hard nosed about this to make sure that absolutely no children get into dispensaries. Right. Right, which is which is should be the industry standard, and it is. And yeah. and but there are bad there are bad actors. You know, it's very interesting. I'm not typically a conspiracy theorist, and I don't readily put a put a tinfoil hat on. But it's just kind of interesting that every time there's a piece of legislation that's coming up for a vote in Virginia, all of a sudden we start hearing the, reading these articles about, uh oh, somebody some kid went to the hospital. You know, and you don't like to hear those stories, and they happen. And they're, because one of the things that happens is that these convenience stores kind of do what they do um, and ignore the law. And that's another because these a lot of these convenience stores are 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 they're not mom and pops; they're like multi-state operations, right. retail operations. And the, you know, you walk in a gas station, and and you know, it's like, well, why would you why would you buy your medicine in a gas station, right? But but you, but they do it, and you go in there, and that's one thing is like they came up in Virginia, man. It was just like clockwork. It was just on the eve of the vote, and all of a sudden, these articles. Uh oh, gas stations are selling marijuana. They're claiming it's hemp. <laughs> oh, they should go spend some time in New York, and they'll really see how that works. Right? Okay. <laughs> how does that work in New York? Every corn, every store, every block. I should not say every store, but every block in New York when I was there in April had a smoke shop that was selling weed. There are all these illegal stores and they don't care how old you are. Right. Uh, Most of them don't, at least. It just gives the whole industry a bad name. It does. And they use the politicians then go and use that as an excuse. Well, but I think the biggest issue with that is. And, and we, we're struggling with this in California because when I was the co-chair of the Legalization Task Force for San Francisco and we were talking about the traditional market and then also how that directly in many ways can connect to equity programs because as we know, a lot of people in the traditional market are people of color. They're also who are targeted for mass incarceration. Right. And they're like, what are we going to do about this, about the competition? It's like, well, how about if we lower the threshold for entry into the legal market, 
but they did exactly the opposite. They made it really hard for people to get licenses, to be able to, you know, be approved for their businesses, whatever buildings they're in is really hard because of the different constraints that different municipalities put in. And then this whole thing about a green zone. Well, you know, you have a green zone in a city. That is something that's going to be attracting a lot of people who want to rip off these legitimate businesses, which is what we're seeing here in California. All these legitimate businesses are getting broken into mm-hmm. and robbed, and they have no recourse because, you know, you can't call your insurance company and be like, someone stole all my weed. When you say green zone, what does that mean? So the industrial area is approved for cannabis businesses. Okay. Right. And, you know, we, we talked about the fact that, you know, you shouldn't be putting the addresses of these businesses on the Internet for people to see them. Yeah, you need to have a database. Uh-huh. Right. But, you know, these are setups that, you know, they think are going to be containing the industry. But what it does is it actually targets the legitimate industry. Right. Right. And these and these are the people that are finding that they can't maintain businesses because how many times a year have they been hit? Or the fact that it's so expensive to do business and the taxes are so high. And, you know, that we have people, we have farmers up in Humboldt that are committing suicide. You know, which it it all kind of comes back to Congress, the United States Congress. Because that that is that 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 relates to these Treasury regulations where there you're not allowed to have a bank. Banks are too afraid to do business. And so, you know, you, you can't take a credit card. You have to have a cash basis on your business. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just insane. And then paying your taxes so all, all in cash. Well, but we could change that. And they've there. And so, you know, the the our, our friends in Congress, like, you know, Earl Blumenauer and all those kind of folks have been trying to get this done for a long time. Yeah. Congress, by the way, is also needs to act to force the FDA's hand with respect to CBD because the FDA is just a lost cause. And so there's been a lot of activity to try to get Congress to. um to to force the FDA to to or or for Congress to just declare that that CBD is is uh, generally recognized as safe is is lawfully in commerce. Well, and then we're looking at that because I had uh, both Barbara Lee and Earl Blumenauer on the show earlier this year separately, and I was talking to them about you know the high taxation that we're seeing at the state level, mm-hmm. and when we get to federal legalization, you know. We know that the feds always want their taste of the pie, too. So how is that going to help us survive? Or how, I mean, what do you think as far as people who, like yourself, who are working in the legal portion of it and, you know, working with lobbyists and different people like that, how do you think that we're going to be able to get both the state and federal level to work together because we know they need to get their money, but in a way that actually helps the industry survive right it's a critical question and there's got to be a balance in there somewhere because uh, there's taxation but there's also subsidies and especially with regard to hemp when again we're talking about agriculture it (laughs) there's there's it's really hard to imagine that there's any such thing as profitable agriculture yeah to my mind period anywhere and that's agriculture farming is just not profitable that's why it's subsidized everywhere Everywhere, every country and the international law, I mean, it's all subsidized. And, you know, and, and, and on the other side, there's the taxation part, which, you know, when, when we're talking about um, a- achieving legalization, convincing folks that legalization is a good idea, typically the argument is 
it's instead of making it a criminal issue, we should make it a, you know, to extent it's a health issue, but, but legalize it and regulate it. And I agree with that broadly, but it's, but it's just, it's, it's, it's where the, where the rubber meets the road, it gets tricky and complicated because if you tax it too much, then you don't get rid of the black market. Because it just, it, you know, because people can, why, why would I go to a, you know, a rec, rec store or even a dispensary and pay top dollar for a great bud when I can, you know, get it from the, the dealer down the street. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's kind of the obvi- obvious problem with taxation. But, but you do want to tax it some, and you hear stories about from Colorado where they've got nice revenues from their cannabis taxation that's going into their schools and it's going into the good stuff and it's helping, it's, it's helping good government. So right. there's a balance to be struck there somewhere. But in the meantime, I think in order to avoid excessive taxation from, from, the, from the start, and also in order to, to, um, to promote equity, which is really a critical part of all of this, there, there has to be, you have to have the support of government, basic support of government. There has to, there has to be some degree of, um, of subsidies. You have to have, have minimal fees and you have to make sure that the, uh, the cost of entry is as low as you can possibly make it. In Virginia, you have, when, when you first started getting hemp licenses, you know, it was cost between when you, for all the fees, the entry fees, and then you had to, the requirements for establishing a, a facility that was secure and, um, and, and healthy and safe and all that, you ended up having to have at least, you know, two or $300,000 just to start up. There's no way a family, uh, you know, can, a small, medium operation. We want cannabis to work at the local level. We want it to work for families. We want it to work for local communities and local economies. We want to be able to have cannabis uh, farms where you can go and it's like, it's like a winery. And people, and you can have cannabis tourism. Yes. And that's that. That's the direction that I see it. it, it we, but in order to facilitate that, we've got to get rid of these, these, these crazy rules that are so restrictive and make it so expensive. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people have turned to hemp. At, at least, you know what I was seeing here in California. You know, they're like, "Wow, this new industry. This is a way of creating generational wealth for my yeah. family." And then some of them have had the bad experience of hiring a consultant that makes recommendations. And then they just bought the wrong cultivar of hemp and they have a whole field of stuff that they don't know what to do. Right, with. right. It's so important to avoid those mistakes early on. Yeah. yeah. Which is easy to make mistakes when you're farming. That's what that's what you do. That you, you, you work those mistakes into your model. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that if you're starting up a, a business that's going to end up being either a, a wholesale or retail thing with cannabis. But Hey, so what's the deal with, you know, I know in cannabis, 280E is a big issue, but is that the same thing in hemp? Are they having um, the same issues with taxation in that way? Well, no, because... Um, because of the farm bill, correct? I think that's right. Yeah, because in hemp, you don't... Um, it's it's legal to, to farm it as long as it's 0.3% THC or less. Yeah. It's legal. Well, and it'd be interesting to see, like, if we started looking at things like subsidies and different things to enrich the program, like how they'd be able to support farmers if they purchased whatever, whether it were clones or seeds to grow that were supposed to grow in a certain way. And of course, you can't control nature. Right. But you get a hot crop. Uh Uh-huh. 
Well, there's then there's ways around that too. I mean, the Virginia legislation was had provisions where it was a, it was a quote unquote negligence provision where if it, where you get a chance if you get a hot crop you get it you get a chance to like you know um, destroy it without any uh, ad, adverse consequences. But I wonder, like, if it'd be possible to have in the future some sort of insurance that would be able to help. Insurance is another part of it. Absolutely, sure. What are you excited about? I mean, there are so many things that we have to work on. It's going to keep both of us busy for a very long time. You know what I'm excited about is the fact that this plant takes care of itself. Yeah. Somehow. It just keeps going. And you can't stamp it out. You can't. No, it's they truly tried, a weed. <laughs> it's like, well, I was just going to say, because in, in back in the in the 60s and 70s, well, really ever since the 30s, but um, the, the DEA and the federal government tried to literally eradicate cannabis. To, to remove it from reality and to get rid of all the, the so-called, uh, um, uh, we, uh, uh, what do you call it? Well, it's feral hemp is what we, is, is the proper term for, uh, for it. it. It's growing on the side of the road. <laughs> That'd be a good name for something. Feral hemp. Feral yeah. hemp. The feral hemp coalition. <laughs> That's right. I <laughs> a friend, love that. A friend of mine, a friend of mine uh, that I play music with sometimes was saying he thought that, uh, the hemp coalition would be a great name for a band. <laughs> so it's just fun i'm excited about fun it's a fun it produces fun it promotes fun it's a fun it's fun to grow yeah i grow in virginia we can grow four plants now so that's that's my hobby i love it yeah what's what's going on with with personal use and everything right. in virginia well so what happened was the democrats took control of the virginia legislature and the governorship um for the first time in many years i guess it was in uh 2016 or, or um, um, by by 2018, and uh, so the Democrats got some good, decent legislation for legalizing cannabis passed, and it set it set forth um, a timeline of a number of years, like like most states who are regulating do, uh, to put it in place so that a number of years down the line there would be a, they would have a recreational market, but in the meantime they would set up a state agency to regulate it, like like you are. <laughs> part of in California, you know, so they had this, this, this sort of plan that they put in place. One of the immediate things with that plan was to immediately legalize it for small amounts of personal growth. So we tried to make it 12 plants, <laughs> which I think is what Michigan has. I think that's the biggest, the number of any state. My home state, the where you used to be able to get uh, arrested for resin in a bowl and now the highest amount of plants. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, there you go. And so Virginia ended up passing for four plants. So now in Virginia, um, so, but, but before I, I, I explain that, um, but, but so in the meantime, so that, that legislation passed. It, it set forth um, a timeline for an eventual recreational market, setting up an agency that, which would then promulgate rules, et cetera. But the, in, in the short term, legalizing it for plans for personal growth. But then in 2020, the Republicans took the House of Delegates and the governorship. So that legislation and that plan moving forward just just got frozen in place. Mm. And uh, there were some great, really good equity provisions of that too. They they were going to give, they were going to give preference of licenses to uh, previous uh, criminals, criminal con, pe- persons convicted of of, of cannabis crimes. We're going to get a leg up on licensing, things like that. Um, all of that is 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 um, is just stalled right now. But in the meantime, 
the personal growth provisions went into place and the personal possession you can in virginia you can possess up to an ounce you can take it with you in your car as long as it's not like accessible so as like it's kind of like a, an open container yeah stick law. it in your trunk yeah exactly so you can carry an ounce you it has a gift provision so if somebody comes over to your house and you've grown weed and you've got um you know a pound of weed sitting in your closet you can give that person an ounce uh, legally that person can take an ounce any guest you can give them an ounce um so that it's like it creates that little kind of gift economy um which is pretty cool you're it's pretty restrictive too you're not allowed to carry um on a public bus or train um you know you're not allowed to smoke in public consume it anything like that um and there's and as i say there's no recreational market yet so there's but there are there, like everywhere else there are some storefronts here and there where you can go and and buy um buy edibles and and buy 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 get your gummies get you know dispensaries um and whatnot so it's it's there's still quite a lot of bit of chaos and uncertainty and and about it but at any at least we can grow four plants so you can grow your own medicine or you can do like i do and have a hobby and it's just fun it's a lot of work it's you know growing weed is not it's like anything it's there's a lot that can go wrong yeah you have to you have to know how to water you have to know nutrition and you have to know bugs and if you're going to grow it outdoors you have to you know it's it, there's there's lots of uh pest problems with it that can come up and um and in a, in a in a humid climate back east, it's a challenge too. Uh, California is a better climate. To to it's more more of an arid climate. I wonder, with your climate, like how a land race would do in your backyard, just because they tend to like you know the hotter, more steamy climate. Well, I've been growing a a variety that uh, I got from a person who who produced the seeds with in Virginia, mm -hmm. and that's done pretty well. So you know, by now there are there there has been developed a, a stock of of a genetic stock that's localized. Yeah, do you think one of the things that I've been talking to people about lately is you know eventually we'll be seeing interstate commerce, and even though I don't like to compare alcohol to cannabis, I think about the grape growing regions throughout the United States. Right. What do you what do you I mean, and it, I'm just asking you to whip out your crystal ball, but what do you think you'll see for like prominent areas that will really shine when we get into that? Interesting. Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think that uh, I, I guess there's a lot of places where that's kind of already happening in Colorado and California, Oregon, Washington, um, and and those places. It's going to be you know, tricky to work out all the, all the details and, and all the neighborly things. For example, with hemp and cannabis, um, if you're going to grow a field of hemp, um, that's, that's going to be your conventional, uh, fiber grain crop, then you, you can't grow cannabis anywhere near that because right. the, the pollen travels so far. And if you have hemp and cannabis crops near each other, it's like each will ruin the other. <laughs> But especially the hemp will ruin the cannabis. And Oregon went through a lot of problems with this number of years ago. I don't know if they solved it. I remember but that. You have, you're going to have to have some some regulations where the state has you know some boundaries and rules and and sets aside some land for this and some land for that. So that's that's going to have to get worked out. But in the meantime, I mean, I'd love to see Northern California continue to be you know a, one of the world's 
world's leading uh, places for cannabis. I, I will I will say though, as a, for, as an environmental attorney who used to do work in Northern California, that's a big issue too. That because we can't we, we can't you know log forests in order to create cannabis. Right. And we can't you know allow. Um, it's a problem with with watersheds, water pollution from rat poison that people use. That's all. Uh, that's those those issues have been kind of at the forefront, I guess, up there for a long time. I've been a little bit out of touch of that, having moved back east. But so those things are going to have to get worked out. But um, I don't know. I do see I, every state's going to have to figure out their own way with that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be really exciting to see. I'm just. I'm just really glad that there are people like you involved in it. Well, thanks. And I'm glad there are people like you, too. Well, thank you. Absolutely. If people want to follow your work or check you out on social media or anything, can they do that? Um, I um, I don't really have a, a Facebook thing right now. I've kind of gotten away from Facebook. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> but um, 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 I guess I would just say um, I can I can I'll throw out my email address out there okay people can just email me at um sam johnston at earthlink.net sam johnston is one word and that's johnston with a t sam johnston at earthlink.net and and before you go um we'll get into a little bit of music stuff are you playing out a lot oh sure sure where can people see you play never stop doing that well i've got a band in virginia called mama tried which is about a good bit of Grateful Dead covers, but we've got some good rock and original songs too. And I play keyboards in the band. I play with um, great players in the band. I'm lucky to be with uh, a guitar player by the name of Charlie Pasterfield, who used to be in a, a well-known East Coast band called Skip Castro. Um, Susan Munson fronts the band, great lead vocalist, another kind of uh, a fixture of the Charlottesville, Virginia music scene. Charlottesville is a great music. That's where I live, Charlottesville. That's what I've heard that is a great music and scene. It's, oh, it's great. There's so many bands, so many musicians there. And we play places like, you know, the Jefferson Theater and the Ting Pavilion, which was expanded a number of years ago by Dave Matthews, who was from that area. Yeah. So, yeah. Who also likes weed. Yes, he does. I, <laughs> that's what I hear. Yeah, well, and he's, he's been uh, active for family farms for a long time, too, doing the farm aid shows. That's cool. Right. Well, and in addition to doing keyboards, I heard that you're a pretty mean harmonica player. Ah, oh, well, you I know. I heard you wail. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> sure. I, whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, thanks so much for being on the show. And, and I thank you for the great conversation. I mean, it's... I think we all, I like to look at everything that's going on throughout the nation, but it's really easy to get stuck in the place that you're living in, get consumed by what's going on there. Right. It's hard. And there's, it's always with cannabis. It's like two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. But we just persist. We'll keep going. Like I say, this plant is will take care of itself, if, but we but we need to be there to help it along. And it's a relationship between humanity and can, this this plant yeah. is real. And it's, and it's thousands of years old. Yeah. So, you know, we'll... well I'm happy to be doing the legal cha-cha with you. Couldn't be more delighted myself, Sarah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Take Alrighty. it easy. And everyone, remember, if you like listening, please give us a review. Share it with a friend. Let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever 
wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. Thank you.